Hi guys, welcome to the Revive a Stronger podcast. I'm your host as always, Steve Hall, and I'm welcomed by Mike Isratel for another great Q&A. And actually, I should have a word with Mike because I know he's been bad-mouthing me over on uh, RP+. And now I've even given RP Plus a plug as well. So um, for bad-mouthing me, I've given you a plug. There you go, Mike. Steve, I'm not just bad-mouthing you on RP Plus. I'm bad-mouthing you on every conceivable forum. I personally message the top coaches that you interview and say, don't do this interview. Steve is a bad person. <laughs> well, that says a lot about me and about you because they still come on and do the interviews. So totally. I guess you're just that <laughs> qualified. I'm that polite as well. So um, anyway, that's uh, this will actually come out after we've done our seminar over in London, most likely. Um, oh, so wow. I'm sure that will have gone down well. Um, and we have an episode that we've already recorded coming out before that seminar. So um, yeah, we, we've got many in the tank. And we have a question now from Jared Feather. Well, actually, this was one I had for Jared. And he wanted Mike to kind of lay in on it because he thought Mike would have a great response. And this was talking about something that gets spoken a lot about we see online, and that is kind of the prime driver for hypertrophy. And some people argue that it's a progressive tension overload, um, not the volume that is the most important thing to consider. And I'd just love you to weigh in on that, Mike. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so first of all, it's definitely both. The next question is, um, what is the sort of relative contribution of both? Um, We can surmise a thought experiment to sort of play around with these ideas. So if I gave identical twins the same genetics, right, and I gave them each a training program, one individual trained um, from MV to MRV deload repeat with their so just their, their legs, just quads, just squatting uh, with a 100 pounds, which was their like 40 RM. <laughs> and they never could increase the weight. And another individual was training, the other twin was training, let's say the twins have a squat max of 500 pounds. The other individual was only training with 450 pounds plus, um, but instructed to progressively uh, uh, also between his MEV and MRV, which as you understand would be a very low volume at a 90% intensity and above, but was allowed to progress in weight by, you know, whatever small increments he deemed necessary on the bar over time. No drop sets, none of that bullshit. Right? Who would grow more muscle? It's a tough question because both are training very highly suboptimally. I will tell you this. If... Both of them are reasonably well-trained. I sure to God hope they are if they're squatting 500 for a max. Not everyone's Andy Bolton pulling 660 for a, a one RM deadlift the first time he ever tried it. It's, by the way, completely insane for those listening. Uh, a true Englishman, I say. Scott, uh, Steve, there, there you go. You have to, that's what you have to live up to. No oh. pressure. And we've got, well, I've got Eddie Hall as well, so I'm doubly screwed. <laughs> Say, oh, Eddie Hall, yeah. Oh, that's right. Yeah, you, you, you must be related or some shit. <laughs> Maybe like a thousand years ago or something. So, um, yeah, wow, British deadlifting is definitely a thing. Holy shit. Um, and so if you're dealing with relatively advanced individuals, man, you know, you ask most powerlifters – am I going to get bigger squatting 90% plus for, you know, four total working sets, 10 total working sets a week for doubles and singles folks who've trained similarly to that, because there are programs that that do similar things. will say, no, fuck no. Like you're going to get strong as fuck. If you don't die, that's going to be the consensus, but you're not going to put on size. You might actually lose a little bit of size, get a more streamlined appearance in your quads. Whereas the person squatting the 100 pounds 
for you know in their within their volume landmarks. Um, you know, Brad Schoenfeld has has actually had studies similar to that with um, various muscles in that you know thirty RM type of situation, and and and, and folks have put on a lot of muscle, right? So um, the reality is that yeah, actually at the extremes, volume wins, right? And and uh, this hypothetical s- sort of study has already been done in smaller uh, kind of uh, s- smaller less extreme applications. Uh, in research, like they've trained lifters with singles and doubles and only beginners put on size doing singles and doubles, unless they're in like a really like market caloric surplus. And then they're going to put on size no matter what. They put on a lot of fat too. Um, and kind of in the strength world, everyone knows weightlifters, powerlifters, strongmen. If you want size, you do reps. Now, that doesn't mean 30 reps. That means for powerlifters and weightlifters, five reps or eight reps or Boris Shako, when he wants to put size on people, he does, you know, five to 10 reps per set usually. Um, but if you talk to Boris Shako and you were like, can I get to me and my biggest with singles and doubles? He'd be like, what? No, that's insane. Everybody would say that that actually trains or coaches and the studies would agree with them. So when people say now, here's something very important. If we're going to be critical thinkers and scientific thinkers and logical thinkers, we have to be very particular with definitions and we have to um, mean what we say. And when we say things, when we make claims, we have to mean them. We can't be like, well, I didn't mean that. You know what I mean? Like, be like, well, this guy assaulted me at the bar. And it'd be like, so what did he do? Be like, he yelled at me. And you're like, okay, but that's not assault. Like, the police don't consider that assault. And you're like, we didn't mean like assault, assault. Like, okay, hold on. Like, if you do that in court, the lawyer's just going to be like, see, yeah, the judge is going to make fun of you and you're going to leave, right? So when people say getting bigger is about progressive intensity overload, well, what about 450 pounds for doubles and singles is violating that rule? Nothing. That's exactly what it is. So there's no stepping back and be like, but, well, that's an extreme example. It is an extreme example that validates every single rule. So I'll say, but I didn't really mean, ah, 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 right? And then they say, well, with like a reasonable amount of volume, ah, ah, okay. So you, <laughs> so volume is still a key, right? And they're like, well, and then, and then the debate goes down, right? So if we're really serious about saying it's, it's tension, it's progressive intention, progress intention that we're really going after, um, you know, are we really prepared to defend that with uh, data and experimentation and even just uh, uh, just a, a mental thought experiment? And the answer is really when it comes down to it, no, we're not. The next thing people do after that is say, okay, some amount of volume and intensity is required. Oh, that's a much better. And that's very true. But we can get more specific. And this is um, was discussed in my debate with Victor Black. Um, sure you remember that one yeah um and the question then is okay so but what measure of volume and intensity progression is important right um it is volume progression is a different thing uh, altogether it's a different question but how much are we going to bias our program towards progress intention versus supplying lots of volume and and the answer there is it's probably looking like uh, two-thirds to one-third is a good place to start uh, getting a finer tune of things. Like, you know, when you're like, you don't know where you are on the map exactly, but you're like, all right, we're by the drinking fountain in the mall, and that's here. Okay, we're going to start looking here. Oh, here's like this store. Okay, we're right here, right? You don't start looking just anywhere. What do I mean by two-thirds, one-third? That means that your program cannot be relatively low volume, like one-third bias to volume, and like lots of intensity progression. What's an example of that in the real world? Like you really concerned about big PRs in your lifts for like sets of five and sets of eight so much so that you only do like two or three working sets per session to get those big fucking PRs. And then someone's like, Hey, you want to train legs again? Like Thursday? You're like, no way, man. Light session. They're like, why? Like, cause I got to hit more PRs on next Monday. You're like, I, I feel like you think you're a power lifter, but you're not. What about putting in the volume? You're like, fuck volume. It's all about tension overload. It's like, all right, that would be like a one-third, two-thirds. You're still doing some good work, multiple sets, but you're like really biasing. So it's the other way that's probably best for hypertrophy. 
your number one priority is do a shitload of work. But now that you're doing the shitload of work, you should be focused on slowly but surely progressing in weight on the bar by small increments. Um, bodybuilders at the highest levels and actually through all levels train with a very wide diversity of practices. And all of them, but for like a few random percent, train with at least decent volumes. This is one of the benefits of the Victor Black debate was Victor Black actually ran the numbers on Dorian Yates' routines. And he's like, you know what the average set number is? I was like, what? He's like 14. I was like 14 working sets per week for body parties. Like, yeah. And I'm like, yeah, I mean, that's right there for advanced, really strong lifters is right between MEV and MRV, man. I mean, that's right there. So, you know, if Dorian Yates claimed to have gotten big off of three working sets per body part per week, you know, we'd have a fucking problem. But, but there are no bodybuilders. There's crazy hit advocates, but they're not, none of them are jacked or trained for very long. But nobody's really saying that. So coming back to the question, when people say it's not the volume, it's the intensity progression – that only assumes that we're doing a buttload of volume anyway. And then what happens with intensity progression it, it, it being a factor is that because volume is weight times sets times reps, weight times sets times reps, intensity times sets times reps, as your intensity goes up over time, so does your volume. So you can't avoid a volume progression. If you try to not progress volume while progressing intensity, et cetera, then you probably won't grow nearly as much as you could have. So my best guess looking at the evidence is that you got to take volume very seriously, but not just do sets of 40 <laughs> all the time. Cause that's like going to be optimal and not just never increase weight on the bar, but definitely make progress in intensity. Uh, that is, um, you know, uh, slow and steady so that eventually, you know, uh, you get something like Tom Platts used to squat like 500 for 20 or 405 for 30 and stuff. Um, if you took Tom Platts and you're like, I like why you're training, but let's get you to squat like 900 for a double because that'll maximize the tension. Tom's not going to get any bigger legs than that. As a matter of fact, he went head to head in a squat challenge against Fred Hatfield back in the 80s. Fred was squatting 900. Yeah. Fred had smaller legs by two thirds or some shit. You know, that's just not how you get big legs. Another piece of sort of anecdotal evidence is cyclists, uh, velodrome cyclists, who actually do mostly a concentric only movement and who didn't always lift weights always had big ass legs why because they did a basically shitload of metabolite training right on that bike it was sets of a minute at a time tons of lactate uh plenty of tension concentrically at least and uh they got big fucking legs man they got bodybuilder sized legs but individuals in uh, like you know olympic weightlifting uh, like for how big the guys are back when they didn't do too many reps in old, old school training, they weren't that muscular. Like their quads weren't that big. And if when they started to get big is when they started doing sets of fives, sets of tens. Like if you, it's just one of these things, like it's cool, like from a book nerd, PubMed perspective to be like intensity is what's going on. Go find me a program with large lifters that prioritizes almost exclusively intensity, not volume, even weightlifters, even strong men. You'll see strong men doing like leg presses. And like squats for sets of eight, you'd be like, what are you doing? I'd be like, I'm getting fucking bigger. Get out of my face. I'd be like, why don't you just do heavy? And you'd be like, what's wrong with you? Nobody, that's dumb, right? Uh, and and it's just, just to add to the pile, what do your muscles feel like after really heavy, low volume training? They don't feel like anything, Steve. Your joints feel like shit. Your, your nervous system, your just psychology feels depressed. But you don't get a pump. You don't get a burn. You're not like, oh, yeah, fuck yeah, I felt that in my quads. You don't feel like shit anywhere. You feel it in your soul, right? But with sets of 10, sets of 20, you feel it in the muscles way more. And there's that, that feeling isn't much, but it's at least indicative of something physiologically is going on. It's probably growing you. So and now, am I saying that sets of one or two won't grow you at all? No, but, but is, is it going to grow you much less than prioritizing the volume? Yes. Can you prioritize volume at the very expense of any progressions in intensity? No, I don't think that's a good idea. Um, as a matter of fact, there are some really good, I think Eric Helms and I chatted about this on some podcast or another about what it is that stops you from being able to train for sets of 30. And let's say you were benching 100 kilos and you got to benching it for multiple sets of 30 easy. Well, it's been shown, and Menno did a really good, um, uh, Greg and Menno have been talking about this. Uh, uh, Menno's been talking about it for a long time, actually. Greg recently talked about it in a review of his, where you know somewhere between like 20 and 30% 1RM is just not enough disruption to do 
anything at that point. It's by no means clear there's enough tension to activate anything. It's really hard to amass any kind of damage at that point, even if that's a factor. Jesus Christ, it's like baby weight. So at some point, you have to increase the weight on the bar tension to stay in that effective range of mm-hmm. intensity. But am I going to say that if someone only trained at the bottom end of that range, sets of, you know, 30 RMs or light or, or heavier, that's it, 30 RMs or heavier, but just exclusively with state anywhere between 30 and 28, 28 RM, only increased intensity when the weight started to get too easy so that the 30 RM he used to have started to be a 32 RM. If that person just pushed those weights up just like there, that would be a very fucking jacked person if they ate appropriately over a long time. Would he be maximally jacked? No, especially if it was more fast, which probably not. Still be a big fucking person. Velodrome cyclists, more or less, they, they just started squatting relatively recently, last couple of decades. Before that, they didn't, and they were still big as fuck. Uh, well, how are they so big? Because that's basically what they did, and it works. So... It's a great answer and I'm glad I uh, got you to answer it and I'm glad Jared got you to answer it and I think I've been there myself where I have tried to maybe prioritize almost both like I've tried to prioritize increasing tension and increasing volume I've done that almost maybe slightly extreme DUP where I have like very specific strength days with very specific volume days. I ended up just hitting my head against a brick wall because my volume took away from any of the, the tension totally. I could achieve. And then the tension took away from any volume I was getting and I wasn't really. Totally. That's a man. That's another thing that would be a whole separate topic, but we could just kind of play prelude here. It's a big thing that um, Chad and James and I cover in scientific principles book. Um, it's that, um, you, you know, there's the specificity interference and, uh, you know, that's a big takeaway from extreme DUP. DUP is good because it lets you manage fatigue. DUP is not good because it allows you to hit multiple modalities at the same time. That's not what it's doing. Um, but like if you do set of sets of 15 on Monday, sets of, uh, f- you know, sets of eight on Wednesday and sets of one or two on Friday, um, man, that, that's just not a great way to train because like you said, you know, you're too fatigued from the volume to be strong enough to benefit from those singles. And you are, because you're doing singles on a certain day and it's such low volume, you're cutting your overall volume short so that you're not getting a huge benefit from overall volume. And then you kind of like telling your body, Hey, come this way. And it's like, okay. And then later you're like, Hey, what about this way? Like, oh, okay. And what about that way? It's like, okay. And then it ends up just being in the middle again. Now, is it a good, decent amount of volume and, 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 and intensity? Will you still progress? Totally. But there's, you know, we're splitting hairs, but at the high level, you have to split hairs. Give your body less confusing stimulus that takes it in some particular direction, I think is a really good idea. And, you know, uh, I think that for bodybuilding, on average, volume is king, but intensity is queen. Uh, so, you know, it's a very, very, very gendered answer. <laughs> Maybe it's a matriarchy, right? But, uh, you know, volume is the boss and intensity is the assistant. The boss is useless without the assistant, but, you know, the boss is more important. So you got to make sure two thirds of your program should be focused on, okay, volume, two thirds kind of in an idea sense, a priority sense. And then one third of your focus should be on, okay, given that we're doing good volumes between MEV and MRV, Let's find ways to get stronger because um, I've seen some people advocate for programs that increase volume over the long term without increasing weight on the bar at all. I think that's short-sighted. I don't think that's the best way to go about it. But going two and a half kilos per week up on the bar is great for hypertrophy. Trying to jump five kilos or 10 kilos per week on the bar at the expense of volume, I don't think makes much sense. Mm-hmm. No, great answer. And uh, we'll move on to Theodore Bash's question, um, who is actually a Patreon supporter of the podcast. So big appreciation to Theodore. Um, And he said, I would love to hear Mike's opinion on competing age for natties. Um, So age for the first competition. He said he once stated gaining muscle more is a young man's game. Uh, Becoming lean has to be an old man's game then. So really, I would like to know about his experiences with clients regarding that topic, like training from 20 to 30, uh, constantly massing, maintaining a mini cutting without dropping body fat levels below 8% or lower, um, and then decide to compete. So, yeah. So it's a very interesting question because it has a multitude of answers based on priorities, et cetera. Like, for example, Steve Hall, you're, you're a bodybuilding coach. 
uh, at least in, in part. And I mean, how old are you? 28. You don't look a day over 29. <laughs> um, so, you know, and you had been competing for years already. I would never tell someone who wants to be a really good high level coach to not compete because they need the experience, you know, getting it. There's nothing like competing, give you experience as a competitive uh, coach. Um, and also competition doesn't really fuck your long-term development up that much, but it can, especially if you're excessive with it. So I'm going to give out a very general average layout, average, super fucking average. And it's going to differ based on a variety of things, but I think that's a good way to start thinking about it. Let's say you start training at 15 to 17 years old. I think if you're in, let's say you're in it for the long haul, your goal is to be as good at bodybuilding as possible. And you're going to stay lifetime drug free. Super awesome. What you might want to do is definitely not compete until you're over 20. I know a shitload of team competitors and half of them are fucking burnt out of the sport. It's also fucking pointless. What are you showing off, motherfucker? You ain't shit yet. You don't have any muscle. Get out of here. It's always weird to see people on stage that have been training for like two years and like decide to do a show. or like, why? <laughs> right? Get fucking bigger, period. So up until you're 20 years old, I would recommend under very few circumstances you're going to be competing. Between the age of 20 and 25, you can do a two to three, one to three competitions. Three, if it's not a big deal for you to compete, you're naturally lean and you want more experience. One, if you're really like, you know, just a competition really fucks you up um, and you naturally gain muscle better when you're a little fatter uh, and, or, you know, you don't want to prioritize or you, or you really want to prioritize eventually competing as a much bigger individual. Um, I it, Notice what we can rule out. Um, I don't think it's a good idea to wait until you're 25 or older to do your first competition in most cases. I think you got to try it out at least once. But I think it's fine if you don't. I also don't think you should be competing once a year because remember, one to three, right? 20 to 25, that's what, five, six years? If you compete once a year, that's way more than three competitions. It, competing once a year, yes, it makes you feel like you're an IFBB pro and you talk about the season and fucking competitive season's coming up. Um it, that's nice, but it's really impeding you for making long-term gains because you spend way too much time diving and being too lean. So, or too lean to make progress at the fastest rates. So uh, after, you know, between age 25 and 30, um, I think you can compete two to four times potentially. And then 30 plus, it really depends on the level of development and your goals, et cetera. Then you could potentially just fucking compete a lot um, and I would say between 35 and 40 is when you should be competing the most, because that's probably when you're going to be your best uh, in bodybuilding, 35 to 45. Um, and that seems to be the case with Natty or not Natty. Um, and uh, that's when you want to definitely compete uh, a lot because, you know, you don't have too much more muscle to add at that point. And competition is not only a way to show off, but it is a way to progressively get freakier and freakier and freakier lean. Uh, Jared always says that the top natural pros are old guys that are so fucking lean. It doesn't make sense. And it took him a long time to get that old man grainy look. And it's just something you can't fuck with at age 22. There's just nobody, no 22 year olds really look like that, you know? Um, and, and this is, I guess, same thing. It's just not drug dependence. The same thing in, in a non-drug free sport. Matter of fact, thinking about it now, natty or not, it would be the same advice actually. Um, so uh, and actually the advice is even more biased probably to competing later if you're not natty because if you're not natty you've got to take all kinds of fucked up shit to get in shape for a show and that's just, just why you heard it like, so if, if you want to be huge eventually and you're not nearly to the size that you know you can achieve why are you using really gnarly pre-contest drugs to destroy your health and to also at the same time preclude you from getting as big as you could have in the same time frame like, why do that? So uh, for natties, I think it's actually less uh, of a problem. Um, but uh, I think that's the general layout. And of course, it's highly modifiable. But the sort of big take homes are, you know, like if you're 35, you had better start fucking competing. Um, uh, I'm actually, uh, I turned 34 yesterday. Um, and I will be competing next year and probably a lot more from now on if my health holds up. Uh, because I'm going to be next year getting to be about as big as I want to be with trade-offs of sports supplements, et cetera. Um, and then it's time to put the shit on stage and start getting for leaner and leaner and leaner and leaner and leaner, you know, old man lean. Um, 
And then, uh, you know, uh, the other take home is like, look, if you're under 20 years old, I just don't recommend competing at all or maybe once. Um, if you're under 25 years old, you can compete a couple times, but don't don't turn on one of these people that's at every show um, because that's a real knock against your potential to just be bigger. So. No, I have to completely concur and uh, happy birthday for yesterday. I should have realized because I remember um, last year I was with you for your birthday. Um, that's we right. Tra- we trained twice. <laughs> and that's, you know, I what did I do for my birthday? Um, I uh, woke up feeling super sick and then I trained and I felt better and I did work the rest of the day. It was a great day. Um, uh, everyone forgot it was my birthday, which was amazing. Not everyone, a couple <laughs> of friends remembered. Uh, I, I forget, you know, like people say happy birthday and they expect you to feel happy. Like I didn't accomplish a dick in my birthday. Wish my mom a happy birthday. You know, that was a tough day for her. Uh, I didn't do anything. And, and also um, I took my birthday off of Facebook last year. Because last year I got something what? like 2,000 happy birthday things. And I was like, hell no. <laughs> you know, these just people you don't know. Like, I don't even know them as followers. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God. Like, I don't even know who the fuck you are. How the hell are you my Facebook friend? And they're like, happy birthday, Dr. Mike. Or happy birthday, Mike. Best wishes. And I'm like, okay, thank you. And, you know, like at this point, I, it would take me two hours to say, like, I, I like all this stuff. And I really like to do that because I don't want to be a dick. So, was, yeah, I'm just not doing this anymore. Birthday removed. <laughs> Very wise. I'm going to do that because literally I had, I didn't have that many messages by a lot. And I took the next day to go through every single one and thank them. Why? Yeah. Fuck that, man. <laughs> it's me being that polite Brit again. It's exactly. Just so I'd like to do the same thing. So if I can get out of it, that'd be great. <laughs> no, I thought that was a brilliant answer. And I concur with all your points in that it's, people love competing i see it all the time people love competing year to year and they just don't give them they don't improve and they actually get worse and that's the thing i really hate seeing with kind of i don't know if it's the same in drug-free sport i guess it's i mean drug sports i guess it's less as in like a thing in drug sports you can still improve okay but not your best uh, when you compete a lot, but the wor- the worst news is that it degrades your health much more. The shit people take to get in shape for a show is not some shit you want to take unless it's a show that is important to you. Like you take third at the fucking Mr. Kansas and you ran fucking 10 vials of trend to get there. Like, I'm sorry, nobody knows why you did that. And um, it's just like, okay, you've got to have some amount of health you can afford to degrade and still live a decent life as an older individual after your career is over. You got to save that up for when the shit matters, right? So for when, you know, you're at the higher level and you're winning shows that you you're training for shows that you need to win, want to win, then you have an arsenal to throw at your body and still be okay. But if you're one of these guys that starts juicing to the gills at age 18, I know people like that, what are you going to have at the time you get to 32? You're going to be retired because you're going to be, it was the ultimate diss ever. Um, for some reason or another, Boston Lloyd, I'm sure you know who that is, um, was bragging about, was talking shit to John Meadows. This is the nicest person in the world. Oh. And he, there's a Facebook comment. He said, uh, you know, I'm making like $10,000 a week or something like that. And I'll be making, you know, I'll be making more than you or twice as much as you when I'm your age. And John Meadows' response is, you'll be dead by the time you're my age. (laughs) And he got like 4,000 likes and Boston Lloyd's got like five. (laughs) It was just like, no, Boston Lloyd, you're not going to make it to 45. He's just not like, you know, so it's one of those things that people in drug bodybuilding have to consider the health stuff. And if we're real serious yeah competing too often is just not going to get you bigger um drugs are not drugs and the transition you know in drugs uh, you know momentum still is still a thing with drug bodybuilding it's it's a huge thing um and and also the um body water transition between cutting and massing for drugs is like really bad for your health and it's unbelievably uncomfortable you'll have guys compete at 110 kilos and next week will be 125 kilos wow you can't you can't walk around like that because your back cramps up your calves cramp up fucking who knows what your kidneys are doing and it's one of those things where people are like oh you massing again you're like yeah i would not want to mass but i have to because my show's in another six months i got two months of massing you know massing for two months you can take all the drugs in the world if you're at a high level muscle takes time to grow it takes six, eight months of proper protocol, all that stuff, all the supplements, but time. 
and, and like we said, lots of volume and slowly incremental resistance. That's how you get better, not like just blasting the shit. And then again, here's the deal. If you say, I'm going to compete a lot, but I also want to get bigger, the amount of drugs you have to take for all of that to happen is unbelievable. And you're just not going to last that long. You're just going to start fucking dying. Um, because then it's one of those things where you're never at a time when you can take less drugs because you're either competing or you're trying to put on mass and there's no in between. Yeah. So I think I just want to flag up with something I think is really important for the listeners to consider is also the kind of the social life, the relationships, all of those sort of things work. Like when you're competing all the time, it's a selfish sport. And for what end really, like you get a, like a metal trophy at best um, as a natural athlete. And even as someone who's on drugs, like you're not going to go unless you're competing for like Mr. Olympia, you're not earning your big money this way. So you've got work, social life, friends, family to consider as well. And if you're competing every year, I can only imagine what would, like, I just, I wouldn't be able to sustain that. I wouldn't be able to enjoy the sport. And, and most people are not planners in the sense that they don't think about that. They're quite short-sighted and they, like I've talked to so many people who are like 27, 28 years old. They're like, oh yeah, I used to compete in bodybuilding. Wow. And I'm like, to me, it's so alien to say that at that age. I'm like, well, so what happened? Did you get hurt? I'm like, nah, man fuck that sport. You know, it just takes so much out of you. And now I have a family and stuff. Meanwhile, John Meadows over here has a fucking whole, whole family of kids and wife and he competes, you know, regularly because he wasn't that guy doing, you know what I mean? Like he never burnt out. And, and a lot of times people, you know, burning out is not up to you, but more times than not, it is up to you destroying your entire young adult. Like I knew guys like in college, I was lifting heavy, eating lots of food, loving life and growing. And I did my fair share, although usually less than most, but I did my fair share of partying and having fun adventures. Um, when I'm a boring adult now, I party much less, not at all. And uh, I mostly keep my, you know, shit on the grind and do what it takes to get bigger. But some guys did it the other way around. I knew people in college that were eating out of Tupperware all the time, like undergrad um, and, and doing three shows a year. They don't bodybuild anymore. And it's like... Well, you sure as hell never hit your peak. I'll tell you that, you know, retired at age 26 means you hardly become, how many champions are there at 26 years old or younger? Somebody wins the Olympia at, at, at under 30 and people are like, wow, that's a big deal. So it, in a natural body, I mean, like, that's almost unheard of. So. No, yeah. Great answer. And uh, we'll move on to the next question. This is actually kind of one I heard somewhere on social media regarding the volume landmarks. It wasn't a specific question for myself. But I think it was someone who wanted it kind of addressed. Um, but I don't think it's been addressed before. They haven't addressed it past you. If, if they have, then let me know. But it was regarding the fact that uh, your maximal adaptive volume is a moving target. And so on a week by week basis for hypertrophy, you're looking to move with it um, so that you can keep adapting at the best rate. Um, so you adapt and need more. Uh, and so you get to a point where you hit the MRV, so maximum recoverable volume, deload and recycle back to your minimum effective volumes. And the question was kind of how is the minimum effective volume now usable? Is the deload really resetting everything? If you're adapting to things, is your minimum effective volume now not elevated? Um, and it would just be interesting to kind of hear your comments on that. Um, yeah. Yeah, it is elevated, but the degree to which it is elevated depends on exercise selection. So if you altered all your exercises, your minimum effective volume would be just about what it was. <laughs> Uh, last time. If you altered half of your exercises, it would be a little bit higher. If you altered none of them and restarted, it would be not so high. Um, so uh, basically, because of the novelty effect of new exercises, um, if they can lower your minimum effective volume. If you alter new exercises too often, you uh, screw over the momentum and the specificity part of training, and so you're fucking yourself over the other way. So in reality, over the course of a macro cycle, your minimum effective volume is going to go up, 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 up with every, uh, uh, with every single, um, what's it called, mesocycle. But when you come back all the way around to the next macro cycle, your minimum effective volume might go down again because of different modalities you were training. So for example, um, you know, your uh, minimum effective volume for metabolite training occurs, and then you do a low volume maintenance phase well, your minimum effective volumes fall every single week. Then when you start back on heavy volume sets of 8 to 12 as the next meta cycle, then you got two factors. One, your body's not really used to that rep range, so its minimum effective volume is going to be lower. 
and also you have a month of uh, low volume resensitization phase behind you. Now your minimum effective volume is going to be zero to two sets higher than it was last year because it goes up all the time, but not as high as you would think. So because of these alterations and phases, your minimum effective volume does go up, but it doesn't go up nearly as much as you think. And in some cases, it'll go up a lot if you keep exactly the same exercises and the same rep ranges. But remember, rep ranges are different. So for example, if you have sets of eight versus sets of 10 or sets of 12, sets of 12 give you a burn and a metabolite effect that eights don't give you. And because of that, they're novel and you have to do a little bit less of them to still get some hypertrophy. So um, then it's one of those things where your minimum effective volume doesn't jump up much. But if you do eights one mesocycle and then you eights in the exact same exercise as the next mesocycle, yeah, your minimum effective volume goes up. Now, it still recycles because deloading does reduce your minimum effective volume quite a bit. Um, but at that point, yeah, it still gives you room, but not as much room. So, you know, if you progress by 50 pounds on the bar in your first meso, you're gonna, only going to go 25 pounds on the next meso. One, because you're more resistant to adaptation, but two, because you, your, your minimum effective volume is going to have to be a little bit higher than it usually is. Okay. No, that, that's a ground. So I know when kind of if people know your methods, mostly of like when you're going from a mesocycle to a mesocycle, something changes, whether it be an exercise, whether it be a repetition range is slightly increased. So that kind of compensates for that factor. To some extent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So um, I guess there's the, there's a lot of programs and I wonder what your thoughts are on where they basically just keep things. And we spoke about this a bit off air, actually, I think where you're keeping things just kind of the same for a long period of time and kind of not making changes until something isn't seeing a result. Um, mm -hmm. So maybe you have, it is kind of like almost a limited amount of periodization is within that and it's just mostly programming for hypertrophy. You can do that. I don't think it's the best way to go about things. Um, I think that at the beginning of every mesocycle, most every mesocycle in bodybuilding, you have to train at what you or best guess is your minimum effective volume because then you can grow and that'll be really good. Uh, but you don't have to train super hard to get growth. A lot of people are like, why can't I just jump to like my MAV? Like, why can't I just jump in the middle of the two? Oh, you sure can. You'll get great results. The thing is, is that why are you passing up the easiest, least injury risky, least fatigue accumulating growth that builds momentum into the rest of your mesocycle? Why the fuck would you do that? Like, you know, if we could have, you know, zero injurious growth that didn't accumulate any fatigue, that's the only way I'd ever train again, you know, but so this is close to that. It should be awesome to train like that. But there's like a bro code, right? Where you're like, if it's not fucking, not fucking throwing up. Like today I did a, a, a I'm part of like some more advanced multi-meso progression, but today I did a leg workout just before this where um, I hit you know, huge, huge PRs on uh, relative PRs on um, pack squats and squats, volume and, and intensity and stuff. And, um, you know, it was a really hard workout, but literally like two months of workouts before this weren't quite that hard. And some of them at the beginning were actually pretty easy. But that built so much momentum that I'm now PRing like fucking crazy and have huge, way bigger legs than I did because I built that foundation. So people are always quick to rush. Find your MEV, work through it, and then if someone says you should stop way short of your MRV, again, they have to, you know, defend that point. So why would you do that? So th there is a way to train where you keep the volume right at MEV and you progress intensity from low to high. Uh, you have to progress intensity much more than – but that still means that you progress from MEV to MRV. It's just intensity-based instead of volume-based. Um, it's still the same thing. Uh, it's another way to go about it. Like we answered in the qu a couple questions before this, you should be progressing with volume a little bit more than intensity, I think, mm -hmm. because that's the, the critical variable here, or the, the more important one. But I think a measure of both is a good idea. Perfect. And I think actually it relates to a question that did come through and we might have completely answered it, but I'll just, I'll, I'll bring it up. Um, it was from Dieter Olsen who said, if you are making progress with a method or technique, how do you determine when to modify your approach? Do you let training run its course until progress slows or manipulate it on a schedule? Um, he said, not in contest prep or a fixed schedule, just lifting as a hobby and pursuing size and strength as a broad goal. Wondering if you think it's better to get a while 
would wait wondering if you think it's better to get while the getting good or to follow a more regimented schedule even if it means going away from something that's working well at times i'm trying to not answer this question in an overly aggressive manner if you can continue to make progress on something for more than eight weeks you are under training because you're not accumulating the fatigue we would expect and running into accumulated fatigue that is so high that your progress stalls. So if you've been progressing for years on something without having to deload, then you could be progressing more by training harder. So the answer to the first part of the question is if you have progress, should you just wait until you don't have progress? No, because you could have better progress. If you are training hard enough to need deloads every now and again, the deloads automatically reset everything, and then you try a, another approach. It could be the same approach, but you still have to restart it. So it auto-periodizes for you. Uh, so then the answer to that question is, should I do a more regimented style program? Well, the answer is yes, because the deloads will regiment it for you, right? They, they, there's very clear landmarks that go on. So you know, when, when people say things like, you know, oh, I'm just, if I'm still hitting PRs, I'm still going to keep doing it, like, Generally speaking, as a general approach of what exercises you're using, tempos, rep ranges, volume ranges, if it's working, keep doing it is great advice. But if something is like without deload working for months, how the fuck are you not accumulating fatigue? And a lot of times people who think they're not this person necessarily, or probably not, people who think they're advanced but are really beginners will be like just fucking like an advanced guy will ask a question on Facebook and be like, Hey man, you know, what do I do about like, uh, how often should I alternate exercises or rep ranges? And some guy will come on there. I've been trained for six months and be like, just, just fucking don't worry about this plateau stuff. Just do something while it's good. It's good. Be like, Oh, of course you'd say that you cocksucker. You got two more years ahead of you of not having to change anything and make a PR. It just doesn't work for more advanced people. Uh, it's very hard to tell if the going is good. Here's, there's another one, you know, like if I'm making good progress, how do you know you're making good progress? If you can clearly tell week to week, you're making good progress. Fuck. You don't have to worry about any of this shit. Just do something and you'll, you'll get great. Um, but the real answer is I think while the going is good, get it. Don't change much. Very soon it will not be good. And then you'll have to think more. And then the regimentation, the periodization is going to have to be a tool you use to get out of the not going good. But for sure, when stuff's not going good, take some measures that you think are intelligent. Um, fundamentally, just learn sports science and you'll know that the two meet very well. And a good sports science approach is to set up for good goings predictably instead of rely on random chance. You know, if going is, this is very much pre most of my education in this, when I had good consistent results, I didn't so much care that I had good consistent results as I cared about what is it about my circumstance that's causing this? Because I want to repeat it. Like if I woke up one day, I could shoot fireballs and fly. I, my first question would not be, oh my God, what am I doing with these powers? My first question would be like, can I get the government to scan my body and see if I developed a nuclear reactor by just overnight? You know, like how? And the reason you ask how is, how can I do this again? How can I get great results again? Imagine that you found out that, you know, the reason that your last bench press cycle worked well to make you stronger was because you did more pause work and that's where you were weakest. That's why I did it. Not because of the weird dips that you were doing at the end of your workout. Wouldn't that be great to know for future? So you wouldn't have to waste your time doing dumbass dips that didn't do anything and you could do more pause work and get even, of course. So when people say like, should I just keep doing the shit while the going is good? Yes, but you better damn well investigating why the going is good so that you can learn stuff so that eventually you plan good goings instead of experience them. Um, it's, it, you know, like, because, you, you know, this stuff isn't rocket science after all. You'd be like, huh, why is the going good? Because I'm eating well, because I'm sleeping well, and because I'm intelligently monitoring my volume and intensity. Sweet. But then the going is going to be good all the time if you do that. You know, there's no magic. Um, and it's one of those things like, should I change things up? 
So if your sleep is good, if your eating is good, if your volume and intensity are properly manipulated, what the fuck are you going to change? There's nothing to change because you're already training really well. I don't know what change it is people are looking for when they say, oh, man, I'm not progressing well. I need to change things up. I'd be like, like what? I'd be like, I need to sleep more. Well, I could have told you that. You know, and if you're looking for magic exercises, they don't exist. Um, in powerlifting, you could be looking for like, you know, uh, limiting factor exercises and stuff like that. But in bodybuilding, we already know how to get bigger, man. You work from MEV to your MRV, you deload when you have to, and you pick basic exercises and hang with them for a while, and then you trade them out. That's it. And if he's asking you, how long do I wait to trade out particular exercises, then the answer is yes. When they start to stall out on you and you start to feel stale, that's when it's good to recycle exercises. So if like, for example, if you're adding like sets and reps to your barbell curls and it's been three months since you've done any other bicep exercise, you've been doing barbell curls and you're getting gnarly pumps, you're getting stronger certainly every month and by a little bit each week and your mind muscle connection is great and you visibly have bigger biceps, don't trade out barbell curls, keep them in. At the end of that, you know, maybe uh, next month, you're going to be like, ah, like tendons are kind of hurting. The pumps aren't as great. I feel kind of stale. Then certainly trade them out. But remember, that's not going to happen week to week. That's going to be month to month. Then you're already doing structure. You know what I mean? Because the thing is, they're like, do I impose a structure to alter things? Like you should already have a structure, but whether or not you alter within that structure is absolutely a feedback monitoring sort of thing. So it's the combination. It's not like, should I have a structure? Uh, you know, if I'm not making gains, like, you should have a structure anyway, and then ask that question. Hopefully I answered that to some extent. No, I, I, no, I really liked it. And I actually really liked your point on, it reminds me of something called the hindsight bias, where you kind of get a result and you put it towards something, but you don't actually know w whether it was that or not. Um, and there's so many things like that within kind of what we're doing as a trainee, whereas you don't necessarily know when, that adaption took place, what caused that adaption and whether the program you're doing last month was actually what caused it. Or maybe it was the one you did many months ago that's now allowed it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or you were fucking up a lot and now you're just doing something that doesn't fuck you up. So it's not that the program worked, it's that everything else sucked. Um, this gets compounded infinitely with, of course, special sports supplement use because uh, you don't know, is it with the supplements? Was it me uh, or something at the training I was doing? Um, and, and uh, you know, an easy one is if you use like um, – in a PhD program, I had an advanced uh, statistics for sports science class, which was unbelievable. But well, one of the uh, statistical methods you can use basically relies on exposing yourself to a stimulus and then taking it away and then later exposing yourself and then taking it away. And then like, uh, you know, if three or four times uh, you've done this for several weeks or months at a time, and every time you have n noticeably better gains with the exposure, it's probably not chance, right? And you can run formal stats in it and conclude to what probability is chance and what's not. But even if you're changing a million different things, it's like every time I do leg presses, my quads really get bigger or at least don't lose size. So like I do them on a contest prep, they don't lose size. I do them on a muscle gain phase, they gain size. I do them on a muscle gain phase when my diet and training are really on point and everything's great and they gain a crazy amount of size. It's like, I feel like leg presses are a good exercise. That is multiple mesocycles and multiple macrocycles to conclude that. It's sure as hell not like, yeah, man, I did like fucking banded extensions and I really felt my triceps. I feel like they're great. Like, you don't know that they're great. You might have just taken out some dumbass exercise you were doing that was hurting your elbows. For the first time, your elbows aren't hurting. Anything is going to work super great. So it's one of these things like, I have my exercises that I like that are my favorites that I think work best for me. I didn't know that they're my favorites for 10 years. <laughs> That's how long the shit takes. So, you know, when people say like, wow, the getting is good, you don't even know the getting is good, you know, program intelligently, do your best, see how your responses are and, and keep going. Um, what was it? Uh, one of uh, my jujitsu coaches, uh, um, Paul Wicks, I'm actually going to his class in a couple of hours uh, to train jujitsu, super sharp guy. And he likes to get philosophical every now and again. And he is basically his one little philosophical, not trick, but little interesting sort of tidbit is what can you do to improve your best? If you're not improving, what should you do to improve your best? Do your best. That's it. So when people say like, you know, a lot of times when people ask like, oh man, I'm not getting good results. You know, what's the problem? Like, let's say they come up to you, Steve, and they're like, what's the problem with my program? why am I getting good results? And you look over the program and there's nothing glaring in it. Ah, 
fuck are you supposed to know what the problem is? Maybe they're just genetics are topping out. Maybe they had a very small myonuclear domain, very small, you know, satellite cell pool, and they're almost out of satellite cells, even though they're 23 years old. That happens, right? Um, you know, you don't know what it is. So all you can do is look at a program and say, okay, it, it, it seems like you're doing your best. And because that's the cool thing about the volume landmarks is, okay, find your MEV, find your MRV, work through it. If you're accurate about where those two are, there's nobody that grows above their MRV or below their MEV by definition. So we know we're getting your volume right. We know you're getting your intensity right because there's a huge range for intensities in progress. And you can try a bit of other intensities, bias a little heavier, bias a little lighter, but that takes a long time. So when people say like, oh man, you know, I haven't been making gains, you know, here's like my program. What do you think I'm doing wrong? Outside of some really fucked up shit, you got to say just like, do your best and maybe change things slowly over time, it's going to take a long time for you to figure out what it is going on. You know, there's no magic where like, oh, wow, clearly you're doing that wrong. Like, you have to really fuck up to not get good gains. How do we know that? Because a lot of bodybuilders and shit, powerlifters, fuck up all the time, just not majorly, and they get great gains. You know what I mean? Uh, um, and it's just, it's one of these things where people think there's some kind of like, magical code that you're like oh well oh, i'll tell you what you're doing sets of seven instead of eight that's the problem <laughs> that's not the problem and then a lot of the times when you ask them so why do you think you know i've been making gains they're like, oh, i don't know but like how much are you sleeping like well i've really been having trouble with sleep like, Fuck, why are you even asking me this stuff well you know already what to do and i'll put you this way man okay this is getting to something a little bit new i don't think i've said this before greg knuckles and i actually had a conversation about something very similar recently if you're running the basics and you're not fucking them up and you're not willing to jump into sport, special sports supplements or you already have, there's nothing for you that's going to be revelatory. There's not. I'm sorry. I wish there was. But my least favorite kind of consult is when someone's like, hey, here's how I'm training, here's how I'm dieting, but I'm not seeing really good results. I look at the shit and I'm like, I mean, that's what I would have said to do. And they're like, what do you think? I'm like, I, I've got to be honest, man. They've been sleeping nine hours a night. They're eating everything super well, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. At least with some special sports supplements would be like, somebody's selling you fake gear. <laughs> but, um, you know, with naturals, I mean, you're just look, look, either you're lying to me or I honestly can't tell you, you know, like they're working through a broad spectrum of rep ranges and they're like, what should I do? I'm like, hey, you could try training a little heavier or training a little lighter, but you talk to them and they're like, yeah, when I train lighter, I get great pumps. When I train heavy, I get great pumps and get, you know, really good muscle stimulus. And you're like, okay, it's clearly, cause you know, you could talk to someone and be like, yeah, I do a lot of higher reps, but I don't really feel them. And I just get tired. I'm like, well, stop doing that. Mm-hmm. But you go through it and they're doing everything right. And they're like, what can I do better? And you're like, man, we can get the little things a little better. We can really tweak it. But, you know, like if you have a race car already, tweaking it only makes it go a little bit faster, man. We're not going to take a Ford Focus and turn it into a race car overnight. Um, there's got to be something clearly wrong. So it, it's and it's tough, too, because a lot of the folks that that's their first discovery of the limitations of their genetics. It's like when they were noobs, they did everything kind of wrong and they didn't see great results. And then they read a shitload of books. Now they're three years or four years into training and they're, they're training what they think is maybe really pretty well. But in reality, if you and I look at their shit, it's really well. And they're like, but I'm still not Phil Heath. And you just got to be like, bro, <laughs> that time is never coming. And it's tough, right? It's tough yeah. to say like, um, I, I, it's tough for me to, to do those consults emotionally, you know, because it's like, fuck, I don't, I don't know what to say. I'm really glad you did say that though, because I think there's probably a lot of our listeners who, I mean, I think to, to give the, the credit to you for the consultation, just having that with you and then you going, mate, like you're doing everything you can do. I think that will just make them then just be like, right, get my head down, go. And I was going to say, I think a lot of the time for people who will be listening to the podcast, people like you and me, Mike, like we love, we're very invested in this. Um, whereas I think there's just some people where it's ignorance is bliss and they just go into the gym, just work pretty hard. They pretty much get their training nutrition pretty much there and they just see results over time and they, they don't even, they're ignorant to it. So they're not so much questioning things all the time. And it is time. Uh, I think a lot of the time it's just like, okay, like you just need more years of doing what you're doing. I'm really glad you mentioned it because I didn't. So, so, so thank you for saying that. Time is in a, a lot, like um, sometimes I actually dig in. Uh, this is actually a favorite thing of mine to do. 
the same and I haven't really getting really good results. And I'll be like, what kind of results were you getting? And they're like, I only put on 10 pounds of muscle last year. I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with that? That's amazing. And they're like, yeah, but like, like, just keep doing that for five years and you'll put out another 30 pounds of muscle and then you'll be a fucking freak. And they're like, oh, okay. Like sometimes we all get caught up in thinking that like, um, you're supposed to put on muscle at these unbelievable rates. And just by the way, to set the record straight, because I know some of your uh, listeners know who Broderick is and know that I'm working with him. Uh, I've had a couple of people ask me, like, because, you know, over the last year and a half, my physique's changed, like, noticeably. Why did it change? Broderick. What did he do? Well, motherfuckers know what he did, all right? Uh, and the good news is I take fewer special sports supplements than I ever have, but they're the right ones. <laughs> and... I've faced such a huge transformation now paired with good nutrition. And I had one guy ask me, it was a good question. He is like, you know, did you change something with your training? I'm like, what the fuck? I had a PhD in training years ago. Like my training has been fundamentally sound for a decade. Like it's, it was not the training. Okay. Uh, Broderick doesn't even consult me on my training, like hardly ever just ideas, you know? Um, so when people see like myself having trained for basically 19 years, put on like, 10 pounds of muscle in a year, they think, well, me training five, I should be putting on 20. Like, mm, yeah. mm, mm. And, and before I met Broderick and was already using special sports supplements, I must have over the course of four years only put on maybe seven pounds of, of muscle. And I was using tons of shit. It's that's the, you know, and you talk about guys like go to the Mr. Olympia, like big Ramey. Uh, they're like, oh man, what's big Ramey going to show up at? 300 and 315. They're like, what about 330? Like, he does not have the potential to put on that much muscle anymore, you dumb asshole. They're like, yeah, but he's big Ramey. Like, no shit. You think he's not taking something? You think he's leaving something unturned? Like, it, it, pro bodybuilders will tell you, like, Dexter Jackson, 10 years ago, was competing at 235 pounds. Today, he competes at 245 pounds. Do you think Dexter Jackson? is not doing something that could make him much bigger while keeping his waist in check. Of course not. He's doing everything he can. Phil Heath, if he got 10 more pounds of muscle without a bigger gut, he would never lose again for eight years. It would be like 16 times Mr. Olympia. But it doesn't work like that. So when, when it doesn't work like that, even for the crazy super supplement guys, you got naturals at five years of training gaining five pounds of muscle a year. That is amazing. And don't let Instagram fool you with all this fucking bullshit about like, oh, I gained 20 pounds of muscle last year. That shit is not sustainable. It's not. No, yeah, perfect. And I, I think that was probably a good place to leave the podcast on. Um, and I think it was a positive message. It might have felt like a bit of a negative one. It might have put some people uh, in perspective, but I think it was an actual positive one. It's kind of be patient. You know your shit. Just keep moving forward with it. Totally. And listen, if you bump into your genetics and even even patience means you gain one to two pounds of muscle per year and you're starting to think, do I really want to be jacked? Because clearly it's not in the cards. Do I want to spill a bunch of time into this? The answer may very well be no. And there may be beautiful other investments of your time that you can do in life. There's no, there's no embarrassment to choosing another direction. Like it, it doesn't make you hardcore to bodybuild too. Who's really hardcore? MMA fighters. Why? Because they can beat you up. <laughs> you know, like you can tell them they're not hardcore, but they're no, they don't care. You know, it, it's one of those like you know, and 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 at the end of the day, let's say you don't amount to anything in MMA, you're not getting better as fast as you wanted to. There's dumb animals who beat each other in the face. You know, they're they're proto human. They're what you know who who's got more you know kudos? As a computer programmer, does way more positive work for the world than an MMA guy. And all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, being a computer programmer, which is what I started being when before I went on the bodybuilding journey, was already good. Yes, you're already a wonderful human being. You don't have to do any of this shit if you like it. If you're getting great results, if you are willing to put in the patience, it's an awesome journey. But like, there's no, like I've had several consults where people are like, I'm like 40 and I'm barely growing at all. What do I do? And I'm like, do you want to do this still? And they're like, I don't think so. And I'm like, you feel free to quit. And they're like, really? <laughs> but quitting is stupid. You're like, what? Like, you know, you quit things when you have better things to do with them. Like you quit single life when you have a kid and a wife, but that doesn't mean like that's bad. Are you fucking nuts? Like, I just feel like some people are like, man, once I start something like, I've got to go to the top or else. And most of that's just not up to you. You do as well as you can. And when you realize that it's not worth your time anymore, you're an intelligent, good person for making the trade-off to saying, I'm either going to do it less or I'm not going to do it at all. Now, clearly everyone should train, but there's a difference between training two or three times a week for your health and pouring six hours of two-a-day sessions and all this other shit. Mm -hmm. So I think, Steve, do you have anything to add to that? Because I think like some people are like, I have to be big. And you're like, why? Who cares? No, I mean, I've had the discussions with clients of my own where they're kind of saying, like, I'm still able to do all this volume. I can recover and do more, but 
do I need to do it? And I'm like, well, you don't need to, you can get lesser results and continue to move like forward, but you, we could increase it. And it's kind of like, you have to make that decision. Is it enough for you to put that investment in using that kind of risk reward kind of yep. cost benefit analysis? Yep. Yep. If you, if you like the results, great. If you like the process, especially if you like the process, because a lot of people are okay with the results and they like them, but they hate the process. I mean, you only literally live one time. Like you want to be miserable for, for a long time. Sweet. <laughs> that sucks. Those are years you don't get back, you know? No, definitely. And uh, I don't know if you've got anything you want to plug here. I know the mini cut manual will be out now, which for I'm sure. super excited about because I wrote the forward for it. I've written, well, I've read through the mini cut manual and it's fantastic. And I know that's going to go down really well. Hopefully it'll answer most, if not all questions. As far as plugs, we have coming soon the um, RP Diet 2.0. Um, it's the update to the RP diet book. It's not going to be sold separately. It's going to replace the RP diet book. So if you have the original, you got a fucking gold mine. Don't ever let it go. Cause it's not going to be for sale anymore. Cause it fucking sucks compared to the new one. Um, the new ones, the old one was pre editing. It was roughly 50 pages long. The new one pre editing is 350 pages. Long. Wow. <laughs> so um it as a matter of fact can i give a quick chapter list oh, yeah, that we have all right oh my god google come on it tells me i'm not signed in i know I it went to retry. The, the, i think on the last q a which isn't quite live at the moment but it will be by the time this comes out we went through all the the myths and fads and there was a ridiculous number there um which oh yes exciting yeah, and that's just one chapter. But let's see if I can bring up. Um, well, I have an outline. That's cool. Actually, I wonder if the outline even has all the chapters. Because I think we added a, a couple of chapters after the outline was made. I need a new computer, Steve. You this is getting old. Microsoft Word is taking forever. It's Max. You to have to on the Max. They use pages. Oh, don't That's use horrible. Don't, <laughs> fuck. Oh, there you go. Right. Like, yeah, Max are great. They suck. Um. Oh, it's thinking. It's thinking, Steve. It's doing something. When is the book due? So we're not totally sure. It's going to be summer, right? But it's probably end of summer. We also so there's two factors in when the book is due. One is how fast we get it done, which is part of it. But the other one, a uh, bigger factor, is how we plan it with our other releases, right? Like, because we release a variety of products every month or two, and uh, we have to time it to make sure it's not, like, too close yeah. to another product and stuff like that. So kind of as the book starts to be finished in editing, we look at the schedule and say, ah, okay, all right, all right, uh, we're going to release it at the end of August or the beginning of August is better, blah, 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 blah. We always have a couple of projects in the works. Um, Steve, do you edit these things or no? Yeah, they're edited. Well, Pascal does. <laughs> so you can say hi to Sweet. him. Tell Pascal to cut all this shit out. <laughs> Forget <laughs> I ever said an RP diet book. Oh, wait, no, no, hold on. Outline. Outline. <laughs> okay. Outline load. If, uh, um, yeah. Okay. So here is RP diet. Don't edit anything. RP diet. 2.0 chapter one diet priorities you know the whole pyramid thingy um chapter two calorie balance like a lot of detail each one of these chapters is like 30 to 50 pages wow. long. um chapter three macronutrients chapter four nutrient timing in the uh, section on that is like enormous um Talks about meal frequency, meal size variance, timing around activity, all kinds of crazy stuff. Individual macronutrient timing, all kinds of stuff. People are going to Food love composition, that. chapter five. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's for the nerds. Most people are going to be like, what the fuck is this? Um, food composition, uh, chapter five. Supplements, chapter six. Chapter seven is diet adherence, which includes, uh, you know, the motivation and habit 
um, you know, uh, basically how to onboard yourself into a diet if you've never dieted before, all this other stuff, adherence tips. Chapter eight, a whole chapter on hunger management. Chapter nine is nutritional periodization, and it is a big chapter this time because we know a lot more. Another one people uh, Yep. Chapter 10, designing your own diet. That chapter is like 70 pages long. So we basically take you through the entire protocol of building your own diet. Um, chapter 11, monitoring your progress. We did a, um, uh, basically a two to three page write up on every single body composition assessment method, downfalls, uh, upsides, how to use it, et cetera. Um, I believe there are 12 of them. Wow. So, yeah. MRI, DEXA, underwater weighing, pod, pod, skin fold, BAA, waist to hip, BMI, body weight, and a whole bunch of others. Um, chapter 12, body image and self-worth. So that's a psychology chapter about, like, do you need to be maximally lean? Maybe, maybe not. Um, chapter 13, special diet circumstances. That would be, like, vegans, pregnancy, um, and, uh, special uh, conditions, competition day, nutrition, we're going to have a water cutting section in there for powerlifting, et cetera. And then lastly, chapter 14 uh, is in body composition and performance dieting. Amazing. Maybe we'll have to get you on, do a chapter on, uh, do an episode on each chapter. <laughs> that would be totally cool. Uh, the good news is, is we're at the end of each chapter, probably going to include a little, a uh, little graphic of take-home points so that if you read the chapter, you're like, that oh, was a lot of shit. I don't even know what I learned. Take-home points will, will be right there. Oh, and um, there's a section of special diet circumstances of uh, the gut microbiome. Oh, wow. Yeah, that's going to be interesting. Yep. One of our PhDs, uh, Gabrielle Fundaro, she did her PhD on gut microbiota. So. Wow. I was actually going to ask you, Mike, I was going to ask you off air, but it's reminding me now um, if there was someone you recommended to get on to talk about the gut. So um, maybe I can get in contact with her. I'll put you in touch 100%. Just shoot me an email or a message and I will put you guys right in touch because she is ready to chat about it and highly, highly verbose and super, super educated on the matter. It's a whole lot of bullshit in that realm as you clearly yeah. well know. Yeah, definitely. Um, I was going to say you could just replace all your chapters with the snake diet as well. So <laughs> the snake diet book is coming out um, a little bit after the RP diet book because we don't want to interfere with sales because <laughs> the snake diet is going to just and you know it's like how to catch snakes, how to prepare them, eating snakes, what kind of snakes are the tastiest snake diet. I remember a random comment, but when I was in school, my teacher told me that snakes don't have a vertebrae. Um, and I had a book that had skeletons from different animals and I brought it in and I was like, no, it does have a vertebrae. <laughs> oh my God. How did that interaction go after that? <laughs> I, don't, I don't, can't remember. I was literally like six years old. Wow. You know, when you lose a fucking debate to a six-year-old, <laughs> you're really dumb. And that six-year-old is going to be a, a pretty good scientist later on. <laughs> Wow, that teacher needs some kind of inverse award or something. <laughs> Amazing. Well, I, I think the audience is going to be super pumped for that, super pumped for the mini uh, mini cut book as well. Yep. Um, and just more exciting things to come on your end, I, I imagine. Lots more exciting things. Steve. And as always, oh, sorry. Oh, no, sorry. I was going to say, it's it's been great doing the London seminar with you since this is uh, coming out after. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we, had a great time. <laughs> we get some good selfies and uh, get some good footage from that as well that people totally. have already seen. So totally. yeah, I just wanted to say, finally, um, if people are ever interested in just finding out more, RP Plus is always a great service as well. Um, and these, you always do the Q&As over there and bad-mouthing me. So I Absolutely. do love that. <laughs> doing God's work over there, Steve. <laughs> Cheers, guys. Thank you for tuning in and we'll catch you soon.